Okay, we're back to John chapter 11. We're in the last few verses this morning in John chapter 11, verses 45 through to 47. It's an amazing chapter, this. So much in it. Uh, so much to ponder on, so much to glorify in and glorify the Lord in. In this chapter, we've seen then that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. That's the point we're at. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. That's what we looked into last week. Now, this is not one who simply just died and it was revived almost straight away. There was oftentimes, or at least a, a handful of times, where Jesus raised somebody from the dead after they'd immediately died. But here, this is one who had already begun to undergo decay and putrefaction. He was, really, his body was probably black and blue and bloated in the way that the bodies go. And the smell of death, as we spoke about, permeated that tomb there. And then he once again saw Jesus perform such an amazing miracle. And Jesus himself had said, hadn't he, what is impossible with men is possible with God. In Luke 18, 27, that's where it says that. Jesus was responding then to the question, who then can be saved? When he answered, when he said this, that you know these things are impossible with men, and they're not possible. They're not impossible with God. He's responding to that question. If if the rich people, if they, if these people can't be saved, who can be saved? That's what the people are asking him. It's so hard to, for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Who can be saved? So Jesus, in this place, proves himself to be God. Because he says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It's impossible for us to go into any tomb, to any grave, to any coffin, and to raise the dead. And so he proves himself to be God right there and then. I am he. I am, as he calls himself in John chapter 8. I am before Abraham was, I am. That is, of course, referring to Exodus chapter 3, when God speaks to Moses from the burning bush and he says his name is I am. Who was in the burning bush? The Son of God himself. He shows that even when one is dead by this miracle, even when one is dead in trespasses and sin, Whilst it's impossible for men to revive themselves, God can and does raise those who are spiritually dead. That is the greatest miracle. How wonderful is our God? How marvellous and how miraculous are his ways? Presented to us in John 11 is a humanly hopeless situation. Lazarus is sick, seriously sick. So sick that he dies and he's laid out in this family tomb. Jesus delays his coming. And we hear the heart-wrenching lament of both Martha and Mary. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Have you ever asked yourself or asked God that question? 
Where are you, Lord? I know I have. Where are you in this situation? Lord, where are you? Indeed, perhaps even now today you might be asking that question, Lord, where are you in all this? Mary and Martha saw only what the human eyes see. Their Lord wasn't there when they needed him the most. Where were you? If you had just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But Jesus was there. He was there. He knew. And he was well aware what was going on. And yet, yes, he delayed. He delayed. He planned. Because he had purpose. And it would all lead to the glory of God. The Father and his Son. That's what he says. This, this sickness will not end in death, but it will go on to and lead to the glory of God and his Son, Jesus Christ. Whilst at all the time bringing great comfort to all the people. It's an amazing thing that God comforts his people. It is the same for us then, isn't it? When we wonder where God is, whatever it is we're going through, and sometimes those things are terribly bad, and they're hard, and they ache our hearts, and they cause our minds to question. Our hearts are wrenched, and we might cry, Where are you, Lord? And again, in his wisdom, he may not immediately respond. But we must be assured as Hebrews 13.5 tells us, that he will never leave us or forsake us. I have to believe that. If I just go on my experiences, my feelings, what I'm going through, I could be so despondent, so downcast. Remember David when he said, oh, why are you downcast on my soul? But David, of course, also went on into Ziklag and encouraged himself in the Lord. Hebrews 13.5 tells us he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is always with us, even when seemingly undetectable and silent. Friends, there is never, ever a sign on his door that says, out for lunch. Never that sign on his door that says, gone fishing for the day. <coughs> he is ever present with his children. But the thing is, you see, children don't always understand what and why their parents do some of the things they do or say some of the things they say. In their mind, things can be simple. Answers are simple. But as is often said, in most cases, parents know best. We know what we're doing. And one day, perhaps you'll understand why we, don't, we are doing it this way and not that way. Why we're saying this, why we're saying no, why we say yes now, why we say yes later. Our Father knows what is best, doesn't he? We may not always understand his ways. We may not always understand his delays. We may not understand his silences, like Mary and Martha. But by faith... God has given us as a gift. By faith, we know and trust that the Lord God has our best interests in his heart. And the glory of God 
and his son Jesus Christ. That is the truth of who our Lord is. So here we are at this place in verse 45, where this miracle has just happened and Jesus has just said, loose him and let him go. He says this in verse 45. I'll read these scriptures to you. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did, he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on they plotted to put him to death, Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into a country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. The Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Hence concludes chapter 11. So at the beginning there, then we, we see something happen. They've just seen this amazing, impossible miracle. Some of them may have tried to justify it or to, to do the same thing as they did when Jesus was buried in the tomb and tried to say that somebody had swap the body or something or other but it says here many of the Jews who came to Mary and seen the things that Jesus did believed in him but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus did here is the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ when it is preached some will believe and some will reject You must have seen that already. Why is it that you yourself are here this morning with an interest in Christ and his blood? And yet some of our family members seemingly seem so far away. Some will believe and some will reject. Interestingly enough, think about people like Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley's own son, Samuel. He was a musician, I believe. There's nothing anywhere it says that he was ever a believer. Isn't it amazing that having a father like that, you'd expect to think that that son would be an amazing Christian because of what their father was, who their father was, what he achieved with his brother, John, and many other people at the time, that his son was not a believer. Also, Jonathan Edwards. Anybody know who Jonathan Edwards is? Jonathan Edwards was 
uh, well, he was the same a contemporary of uh, Wesley and George Whitfield. He was in New England in America, and God used him greatly in revival. He preached a sermon you may have heard of called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in a place called Enfield in Massachusetts. It stirred up the place. They were clinging to the chairs and the pillars because they felt the, the ground opening up, swallowing them into hell. That's how powerful a message it was. His grandson was a man called Aaron Burr, and he was, and he became, should I say, the vice president of the United States of America. He was in a duel, and I think he killed somebody. But he, again, is not known to have ever been a believer. So some will believe, and some will reject, and doesn't automatically mean, because we may be godly people, that those around us will see the same thing. So here some saw and believed. Others ran to their religious leaders to dob him in, as it were. In John 3, let me turn you to, to John chapter 3, read a few verses from there. John chapter 3, we're going to read verse 16 through 18. Of course, we know what John 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. Because, uh, sorry, because, let me just read that again. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. That's the reason given for condemnation. Why am I condemned? Why do people go into the lake of fire? You can name every sin under the sun. And they are sins. And they are being judged. But he says here, it's because you have not believed in the name of the Son of God. That is the greatest sin from which all the other sins find their root. Because we don't believe. Some will believe. Some will reject. Again, let me just take you to another similar uh, verse in Mark chapter 16. The last chapter of the Gospel of Mark. 16 verse 15. This is the commission in Mark. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's what we're to do. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Simple, isn't it? We can make it so difficult at times. The difference between those who believe, those who are saved and those who are not saved is simply this. One believes and the other doesn't. Believes on the name of the Son of God. Turning over to John 12, verse 37. John 12, verse 37. This is amazing. That although it says he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Paul also refers to that in the early chapters of Romans. Although he had done so many signs, they did not believe him. This is what we see right here. 
in this chapter, these last few verses of the chapter of John, many believed who saw, yet some of them went away to the Pharisees to tell them all the things that Jesus had done, went to try and make a bad name of him. The gospel saves. Do we believe that? The gospel on that wall there is the power of God unto salvation. This is what I believe. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel of what? The gospel of who? The gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. But the gospel also condemns those who don't believe. Because they've rejected. They've rejected the Son of God. When we look in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, after Peter delivers this kind of first sermon of the New Testament church, the message that Peter spoke cut them to the heart. That's what it says. It cut them to the heart while they listened to this great apostle. Listen to the gospel message. Listen to the crucified Christ, the message of the gospel. They were cut deep to the heart. And Paul also states in Romans 2 verse 4 that we should know that God's goodness leads us to repentance. Do you not know that God's goodness leads you to repentance? This is exactly what these Jews did right here in Acts 2.37. They were led by the goodness of God to repentance. They were cut to the heart and they turned and they believed. Let's turn to Acts uh, chapter 7. Acts 7.54. This is where Stephen is preaching this long sermon. At least it's long in the sense of how many verses of scripture it is there, whether it was long on the day when he spoke, I don't know, but he, he goes through all the history of the Bible and comes to Christ and says, you have crucified this man. It says in verse 54, this is what, this is what uh, in fact, I'll go from 51. Stephen says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. He says this, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed their teeth at him. Notice the difference. They gnashed their teeth at him. They were cut to the heart in a completely different way. The men in Acts chapter 2 were cut to the heart and they repented. They were broken. They were weeping. They, they, they wanted uh, their God. They were sorry for, for the fact that their hands had blood on them for crucifying their Lord and Savior. They were just, they were just cut. They were almost on their knees, perhaps. These men were cut to the heart in far different ways hardened, gnashing their teeth at them, and then thus proceeded to stone a holy man like Stephen. They stoned him to death. How anybody could do such a thing 
with a clear conscience to me is unbelievable. But then again, Romans 2, in the same context that we looked at previously, when Paul says that God's goodness leads them to repentance, in verse uh, 5, Romans 2, uh, verse 5, says this, just after he says, he says in verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Then he says this, But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. That is exactly what he speaks to these people. Because they, rather than have seen the goodness of God and been cut to the heart and turned to God in repentance, no, they have hardened their impenitent heart and treasured up for themselves the wrath of God on that great day. One has a soft heart of flesh. One has a heart of stone. Both gnash their teeth, uh, sorry, both are cut to the heart. One gnashes their teeth and the other repents. Some will believe, some will reject. The word of God deals with the heart of every single person. Everyone, man, woman and child. One way, shape or form, the word of God deals with every heart. And as I keep saying, when that happens, some will receive, some will believe, some will reject and be damned. That is what the gospel does. Verses 47 and 48, they read this way. If we let him alone, Sorry, that's verse 48. Let me read 47 first. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This man works many signs. We just read, didn't we, in John 12? The many signs were seen by people they didn't believe. Here it says, to me, it gives the inference that, that they actually didn't deny it. This man works many signs. What are we going to do about this man? We see what he does. We see the signs that he performs. What are we going to do about this man? And you see the callousness and the hardness of the hearts of these religious people. They see it. They view it. There was perhaps some of them around the time there when Lazarus was raised. Who knows? It doesn't say. But nevertheless, they, they've seen them firsthand. <coughs> it wasn't just Jesus that experienced these things. Going over to Acts chapter 4 this time. Acts chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Speaking of the apostles, it says, When they had commanded them, to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, 
that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Not only Jesus Christ performed miracles, but he allowed and gave the ability to his apostles to do so also. And Jesus, uh, they've said to him, we, we can't deny that Jesus has done a notable work. And the apostles, the same thing. We cannot deny it. They actually say it there. We can't deny that a miracle has been done here. So blind, so hardened, that even when they see it, even when they see that it's real, with the evidence presented to them, what do we see there? See exactly the same thing that happened with Pharaoh. Pharaoh saw miracles in nature. The plagues that God sent, they were impossible to be faked. But what did Pharaoh do? Well, firstly, he said, I I I'll let them go. Please just pray to your God and tell him to take away these things. He knew it was God that was doing it. And he even got Moses to pray for God to take them away, to stop them. He says, if you do this, I'll let your people go. And then what happened? Hardened his heart. And he refused. You not say to yourself, how could a man see such things, not deny it, even ask them and plead with them to ask God to stop it, knowing that it's God that's doing it, and then still harden his heart? This is what happens to those who don't believe. They say, this, this reaction that they have, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. But we don't want that. But why did they not want it? Why did they not want everybody to believe in him? Because they were afraid that the Romans were going to come along and take away both their place and their nation. Both their place and their nation. See, they wanted to hold on to their position. They were very important people in the midst of Israel. What was Nicodemus called by Jesus himself? Are you not the leader of Israel? He was an important man. And these Pharisees didn't want to let go of that position. They didn't want to let go of that power. Not for Christ. Not for him. Not for the Messiah that they were waiting for because they didn't believe he was. They believed that when the Messiah came, he was going to be a military man. He was going to hand them all the power, lift them up, exalt them, give them position, give them power. That's not the case, though. And they saw this man come along and they hated it. They didn't want to lose their power. They didn't want to lose their position. They wanted to have their hold over the people. Look at uh, Matthew 23. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, and we look at verses 5 through 7. This is the statements of the woes to the Pharisees. Verse 5 says this about the Pharisees. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. They love it. They love the acknowledgement of men. And you know what? So do we to some degree. 
I don't think anybody here would ever say that they don't want to be seen to be favorable before men. They don't like to have a pat on the shoulder and to be thought well of and even to be lifted up on a pedestal perhaps at times. We all have that inclination as human beings, but they loved it. That's what they wanted. That's what they desired above their Messiah. They desired it above Christ. And you know what? They were willing to kill for it. And these were religious people, people who said that they believed, those ones who were supposed to be leading the people in their religion. Wickedness abroad. In John chapter 12, verse 42, says this, Nevertheless, listen to this, this is interesting as well. John 12, 42, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Again, that's the issue. Even with those who did at that time, who were in the leadership, professed to believe in Christ, they kept it quiet, they kept it hidden, it was behind the scenes. Maybe that's perhaps why Nicodemus came at night time. At least one of the reasons. Maybe in the daytime Jesus was so busy he might not have been able to get in, but nevertheless he came at night time when no one else was watching. He could sneak in and ask Jesus his questions. But notice later, who was it that went to the tomb in the open? Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, both highly sought of, thought of men in Israel. And they did it publicly. Gone from one thing, hiding in the night, to de de declaring their faith gloriously at the tomb of Christ. <clears throat> these men were changed. These men were saved. These men saw and believed that some of them, some of them hid it because of what? Because they love the praise of men more than that of God. Again, we ask ourselves, are we like this? Do we hide our faith? Do we hide our belief? Do we hide uh, the, the enormity of it to us? Maybe we're embarrassed by it. Maybe we love the, co the commendation of men more than that of God. And we see this man Caiaphas, don't we? Caiaphas was the high priest, and we see that he was very inst instigating in this death of the, of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But he, he prophesies even unknowingly. He's not a godly man. He's not a believer. He's a hell-bound sinner. But as the Bible says, at that time he was the high priest, and so God used that. Because it was a place of authority, a, pl a place, in a sense, you think about everything the Pope says, the Catholics believe them. Because he said it, because the Pope said it. Must be true. Same thing here. Caiaphas said it, the high priest. But he did, he actually, God used him to prophesy. And here he says, what was going to happen? You know nothing at all. Do you not consider that it is expedient for us? That one man should die for the people. He's not meaning it in the way it actually is. He's meaning it that in order for us to save our nation, in order for us to save the power we have, do you not know that it's expedient for somebody to die in order, let's get him out of the way so that we can continue being what we're being. But he's prophesying actual reality of what Jesus has come to do. Do you not know? Do you not consider 
that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Not that the whole nation should perish by this apparent false teaching. Now this he did not say on his own authority. And being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would indeed die for the nation. And listen to this. Not for that nation only. Not for Israel alone. But for all those who he would gather together in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad, for every single person. Again, we bring in Revelation, don't we? Revelation 5, verse 9, I think it is. Under, from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue, the Lord Jesus brings out his people. He died not only for Israel, for all of those people who he was going to bring to himself, who he was going to gather together. He was going to gather together under one nation. It says in, in is it 1 John 2 2, is, I put my own cross reference in here. 1 John 2 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, John says. Not for the Jews only. I'm a Jew. He didn't die for our sins alone, but for the sins of the whole world. Sins of all those people who I will gather together for myself out of every nation and every tribe and every tongue. He will not lose anyone of his own. And you know this, this plot to kill Jesus? This is what happens later. That in order to stop this, in order to stop losing this power, in order to stop losing their position, these holy men, these religious men, these leaders of Israel, they plot to kill Jesus. I mean, anyone who desires to commit murder is sick. But to kill the Messiah, they must have had no fear of God whatsoever. This is the spirit of Antichrist. It's the spirit of Antichrist. And this spirit is still very much alive and well today. Might be in a different detail. The principle is still there. Look at the way the world is. Look at how the world is trying to go on crucifying the Messiah. Look how the world today is trying to get rid of everything that has the stamp of Christianity on it. Why is that? It's not because me and you are offensive to them. In a sense it is. But that's not the root of it. I will offend people when I preach the gospel in the open air. They're offended because they have the spirit of Antichrist. But everybody in this day and age is trying to get rid of Christ, trying to get rid of Christianity and to raise up every sinful way of life that there is. Whatever your truth is, you can live it. Don't let anybody tell you different. If that's what you enjoy, if that's what you like, if that makes you happy, you go and live your life. But let's just make sure we shove Christ out of the way. We're shoving him out of schools. We're shoving him out of hospitals. Shoving him out of work. And you get into trouble if you speak about him. If you speak about your faith. If you disagree with someone else about something moral or immoral. You're the one that's wrong, not them. Because, well, this is my truth. 
Well, this is my truth. Where's the diversity? But they're trying to crucify Christ. They're trying to get him out of the way, just like here. And even, friends, listen, even as we look around and we say, Lord, it seems like they're succeeding. They're not. They're not succeeding. Christ is the head of his church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And as we said at the very beginning, God will not let, if he will not let our feet slide, it's not going to let his church slide, is he? He is absolutely in control of all this. And these people are walking themselves, campaigning themselves, living in their truth themselves to hell. That's what they're doing. And God, he will allow some of them to do so. Some will believe, some will reject. Now let me finish on this. Many, he says in verse 45, believed. Many believed. Those who had come to Mary, those Jews who had come to Mary, remember what we said last week? Those people who were actually and really weeping with her, comforting her, followed her, thinking she was going to the tomb, and then this happened at the tomb with Lazarus when he was raised from the dead. These very same people that were there, these Jews that were with Mary, they believed, many of them. They saw, they heard, they believed. Let me read to you from Matthew 11. Matthew 11, and I'm going to read from 25 through 27, just a couple of verses. I think this is great. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, and you have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This is amazing, and I'll tell you why this is amazing. Because if you believe today, if you believe this morning upon Christ Jesus, it's for this reason, because the Son has willed to reveal him to you. <clears throat> You don't find that amazing? You could have been a Pharisee. You could have been one of these Jews. You could have been one who was gnashing your teeth at Christ, and perhaps for a time you were. But it says here, he revealed them to babes. Let me say this to you this morning. I am happy to own myself as being a babe. Are you? I'm a babe. He's revealed these things to babes. And it's because he has willed it to be so. Because it says the son, nor does anyone know the father. You cannot know him unless the son chooses to reveal him. He has chosen you, if you believe this morning, to be one of his babes, one of his children. And in, in 1 Corinthians, again, he speaks, doesn't he, about those People, not, not many noble, not many wise, not many of high birth or high standing, but those who are, are, who are weak, those who are unwise, if you like. Is it? 
opposite. That's who he's chosen. And I say, I stand here today, I am happy to be ignoble. I am happy to be a babe. I am happy to be one who isn't of high standing. <clears throat> because these are those that Jesus Christ has chose to reveal himself to. And that doesn't mean to say there is never anybody who has a high station that isn't a Christian. That's not what it's saying. He's talking in general about the fact that in our own wisdom, in our own intelligence, in our own pedestals of, of popularity and standing in this world, it means nothing. These Pharisees had that, and they were as hard, as I said last week, as that stone rolled in the front of Lazarus' tomb. Their hearts were as dark as that tomb, and their hearts were as putrefied and decayed as that man's body was after them four days. But by God's grace, you and I should be honoured to be in the company of babes, should be honoured to be in the company of those ignoble. See, it's far different, isn't it, from what those Pharisees desired, what they longed for. Again, Matthew 23, just going back a few verses later. Matthew 23, listen to what he says. In 11 and 12. And he who is the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. <coughs> that he who is greatest among you. Remember the disciples were arguing about that? That's what Jesus said to them. In order to be great, you need to be down there. You need to serve. Need to be everybody's servant, not a mat to be walked upon. Don't raise yourself up. Remember the parable also that Jesus said if you go to a wedding, don't go and sit at the head table, don't go and sit at the top spot. Because the man will come along and say, Sorry, that seat's not for you, that's for a greater or a more respected or a more loved, in my view, guest. You're going to have to sit down the table a bit and you'll be embarrassed, you'll be humble. But if you go and sit the lowest place, that man might come to you and say, friend, why are you sat there? Come up higher. That's what Jesus does. Jesus exalts us. We don't exalt ourselves. That's what he's saying there. The greatest among you will be one who serves. And he said, whoever exalts himself, whoever puts themselves up there, if anyone thinks of themselves more highly than they ought, God will humble him. Lastly, Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 10. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. Just a reminder of why we're humbled and we don't uh, raise ourselves up on a pedestal. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by his grace you are being saved. 
And he raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace through faith, which is all a gift of God. How can we then be like the Pharisees and raise ourselves up? We need to be those who are humble, but we need to continue in trusting in the Lord for all those we're praying for and believe that the Lord can do the same for them as he's done for you. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that's revealed in his word, that which is yet hidden to us. We ask that you may reveal it to us in time. Help us, as, he, as Jesus said, that he would open the scriptures uh, to their minds, open their minds up that they might understand. Help us, Lord, to see more as we read and as we study. But Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. For those of us here today who believe, have believed because the Son of God has chosen to reveal it to us and that we're babes and we're ignoble and we're those that are classed as unwise in the world's sight, but I'm willing. And my friends here, I believe, are willing to be counted and joyfully counted amongst these people. And Lord, for those who we, who we pray for at the moment that seem to be those, some that reject we ask, Lord God, humbly that you might save many amongst us. We pray, Lord God, that as we saw, as we see many times in Scripture, those Jews that were hard of heart at that time in Acts chapter 2, they were cut to the heart and they repented and they believed. Lord, may it be that you cut those people to the heart that we're praying for. Cut our, our, our family's hearts, those relatives of ours. Cut their hearts to the quick, not in the ways that the Pharisees were, but the ways that these men were, so that they might repent and believe and be saved. Lord, you are the God of the impossible. We can't do it. It's impossible to us, no matter how much we talk, no matter how much we explain, no matter how much we try to convince, only you can save. And Lord, that is what we ask of you. Have mercy for, your, for the sake and the glory of the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.